Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 7, Priorities. Between 2057 and 2069, the people of Earth faced many trials. Scarcity of resources, plagues, poverty, famine, and despair. The superpowers of the Earth fell into factions, each armed with its own doomsday arsenal. Diplomacy failed, and civilization came to an end. Not with a whimper, but with a bang. General Benjamin Castro, the Israeli government's special envoy to the United Nations, was relocated from the UN headquarters in New York City to an underground base. During transport, General Castro was knocked unconscious and preserved in cryostasis. The general awoke 43 years later, in a subterranean society built by survivors of the United Nations. Revived by the Phoenix Project, General Castro was introduced to Phoenix law enforcement officer Major Leonard McGillicuddy and Professor John Bath. If they could work together, Castro, Cuddy, and Bath would lead the first expedition to the Earth's surface. Aided by Project Administrator Danielle Devenu, Chief Surgeon Miro Ganaya, and Engineer Donna Chang, their mission was to determine what life still existed on the world above and if the survivors in the underground Phoenix Project could return. Inside the Statue of Liberty, General Castro hovered over Major McGillicuddy. He watched as Cuddy rolled Bath's simulacrum over. What is it? Cuddy touched the viscous liquid coating the back of the unmoving robot's head. It's like some kind of battery acid or something. Not sure what it is. You smell anything? Castro asked. I can't smell anything. In fact, have you noticed that since we've been here... Yeah, the general interrupted. Senses dulled. Can hardly smell. Can't taste salt in the air. No hairs on this... skin to stand up. Not sure what the temperature is. Yeah. I can see more, Cuddy said, hesitating, searching for the right words to describe the experience. Not necessarily better, but... Yeah, Castro agreed and I heard Bath cry out from inside the statue before those, whatever they are, made a sound. Cuddy sighed. This is going to take some getting used to. Castro nodded. All right, sun's down outside. It's too late to cross over to Manhattan on that ferry. The light's getting dim in here, too. We can't do much with him until he comes back online, or we can talk to the team back in the laboratory. Something nearby caught the general's attention. What's that? The major grabbed the woven canvas and nylon bag. A sack of some kind. Looks like that's what he hit Bath with. What's in there? Castro asked. Cans? Yeah, said Cuddy. How'd you know? Looks like pea soup, baby carrots, creamed corn, potted meat, corned beef hash. That must be what he was talking about. Castro gestured at the creature sprawled out against the wall. He said something about cans. Cuddy shrugged. Robotic eyes zoomed in, focusing on descriptions of ingredients he didn't understand. 
think they eat this stuff? Probably. But it is decades old. They may simply use it as currency. Trade it, steal it, stash it here on the island. Cuddy stood with the bag in his hand. He glanced around, gesturing into the darkness. This must be their base of operations. You think they know about the machine shop? The robots underground? The thought had already crossed General Castro's mind. It was unlikely the scavengers had access to the hidden base where the robots were stored. Even if they knew about it, he wasn't convinced they would know what to do with the machines and graphene pseudoskins. No. It was locked from the inside. Only someone with the same information we had would know about the simulacrum. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? said Cuddy. What's that? Why is the base there in the first place? How does it get power? I assume the United States created the base, but Chang said the technology was... Yeah, I know what she said, Castro interrupted. Between you and me, I'm not convinced about everything they tell me, but... But? Cuddy stepped closer to the general, trying to read the other man's too-polished expression in the dim light. But we're soldiers, Major. We keep the questions to ourselves. Cuddy nodded. It was easier not to question what they were told. Leave that to Dr. Bath, he thought. Still, his recent conversations with Colonel Marsh left him with more questions than answers. And of course, theirs was a mission of discovery. Wasn't it only natural to want to know more? To understand why, more than a generation ago, the human race predicted their own destruction? And rather than fighting relentlessly to prevent it, they settled for preserving a select group of people, the Phoenix Project? Or, were there more than 3,000 survivors underground? Were there more projects? More silos filled with people waiting to come to the surface? And if so, where were they? Were they allies? Or were they enemies? Let's spread out, Castro ordered, his voice breaking Cuddy's train of thought. Search the whole place. See what we find. All the way to the top. Lady Liberty makes a good lookout. The general looked down at the doctor's lifeless robot body. He had only known Bath for a week, but he hated to lose a man, soldier or otherwise, under his command. Bath will either come around, or he won't. When the sun's up, we're out, with or without him. John dressed in ill-fitting, purple surgical scrubs Ganiya provided. As she examined him, he couldn't help but retreat in his mind a little. The lucid dream of his parents weighed heavily on him. He hadn't thought of his childhood much until recently, and even still, not with much clarity. John remembered living in select quarters not far from where his parents worked. He attended class via computer like everyone else in their section. The curriculum was unchallenging, and Dean Rand was right. He had difficulty making friends his age. He had little interest in other children, other than what he could glean from their behavior. When they were no longer useful, Bath couldn't help but be standoffish, aloof, arrogant. He knew this now, but it was completely unintentional then. Finished listening to Bath's heart and lungs with a stethoscope, Ganiya tapped his skin lightly, watching for reactions. How do you feel? A little lightheaded, groggy, can't think straight can't remember. Ganiya nodded, a faint grin at the side of her soft, dark lips. It's a side effect of the transference. That should subside shortly. No, 
It was something else. This flood of memory. Bath remembered spending long hours alone. His father, Diarmid, was in his workroom or assisting the Phoenix Guard, a select group of citizens appointed to go to the subsections and ensure the lower classes were taken care of. His father took medicine to the sick, food to the poor. He arranged for the dead to be disposed of, and he mediated those disputes law enforcement were too busy or unwilling to bother with. He must have known Cuddy's father, Bath said under his breath. I'm sorry? Kaniya flashed a light in Bath's eyes, looked into his ears. John tried to straighten himself but was unable to do so. His body still felt sluggish, his muscles unnaturally contracting. Easy, Kaniya said. Thank you, doctor. Bath swallowed hard, realizing that despite his earlier protestations, in this moment, he needed Ganaya's help. Please, the doctor said, call me Meryl. John half nodded, glancing at the darkness of the doctor's eyes, wondering what she made of this whole experience. Was there a stroke of vulnerability? You know, uh, Meryl... John tried to sound casual, but was plainly testing how well he could trust her. You remember all that stuff Devenu said about, you know, my parents and Cuddy's and... Yes, of course, she replied. Yeah, well, did you know my mother was a special counsel to the ambassadors and heads of state who made up the Phoenix administration? Ganaya shook her head. She tested Bath's reflexes, then made note of the delay in response. It's true, John continued. He glanced around the section of the laboratory cordoned off into a medical unit. He searched for attenuated cables, pinhole cameras, obvious listening devices. Maybe you didn't know that the original council was unable to make decisions by committee. Even after the free world was destroyed, the survivors from the UN just transferred their differences and prejudices underground. The central processor dissolved the administration and created the so-called Shadow Council. Ganaya wrote something on a clipboard, then looked up. Is that why you're so distrusting of all of us, or what we're trying to accomplish here? What do you mean? Because of your mother? She was an important person and then she was... dismissed? Bath shook his head quickly, moved reflexively. Sensitivity returned slowly. No, that, that's not what I meant. Then what did you mean? I shouldn't be saying anything, but... What's better about a group of randomly selected advisors asking questions to a computer? Hmm. Can I pause as if thinking deeply on the question? Then she smiled. It was always my understanding that the only way to put aside those prejudices and insecurities was for the council to conduct themselves without knowing each other's identities. John raised his voice slightly. Their identities, their qualifications, their loyalties. It's absurd. Here. Ganaya walked behind a curtain. She returned with an archaic, collapsible wheelchair. I'll take you back to your room. John nodded. He braced himself on the edge of the examination table and dropped into the uncomfortable chair. He looked over his shoulder. What did Chang mean? He asked Anaya. From before. About transmitting into the simulacrum and repairing it. Ganaya pursed her lips, her dark eyebrows turned down. 
What? Bath asked. Meryl glanced around, then looked down at Bath. This stays here, she said. Between us. Okay? Of course, John nodded. I don't think Chang... I don't think Donna believes you and Cuddy and the General were the best choices for the mission. She wants to use the transference coffin to go into one of the simulacrum. She says it's to repair it and continue as part of the team. She says... Ganaya paused. She was reluctant to betray Chang, to say too much to Dr. Bath. She didn't want to compromise the mission. And yet, she had her own concerns. I... I want to trust her. John sighed. When he flexed his fingertips, he felt pinprick impulses run the length of his arms into his torso and neck. I realize Chang discovered all this technology, John said. She was the one who got the transference modules and the green stream to work. But... That's sort of like her baby, Ganaya interjected. She pushed Bath in the wheelchair towards the laboratory vault doors. John nodded. I understand. Trust me. But what I've never understood is why we don't get someone else to lead a mission through the vertical supports to the exterior hatch. Wait. Ganaya paused. You mean... Yes. You know there are those who tried. Ganaya pushed Dr. Bath slowly out of the laboratory. If she understood Bath correctly, he was suggesting finding the long-rumored sealed hatch that supposedly led to the surface. Those efforts weren't sanctioned by the central processor, Meryl said. The council has never given permission for such a task. Besides, it's too dangerous. No one who went looking for the hatch, as you call it, has ever returned. Bath shook his head. That's what the computer and council say. I've spoken with people who think differently. Dr. Bath, you know better than to trust them. What? John reached down. He held the rubber and plastic wheels, stopping the chair from moving. I shouldn't put my trust in people? I should blindly trust all this high-tech machinery? Haven't you ever wondered why the computer and the council don't authorize a mission to the hatch? John felt Meryl tighten her grip behind him. Well, I just... I figured it was because we don't know where we actually are. Ganiah came around the chair to stand in front of Bath. She glanced up the ramp at passers-by. She leaned into John, lowering her voice but speaking directly. Say a team was able to go outside the Phoenix Project. Say they climbed or dug their way up a corridor miles long to your so-called hatch. And let's say they survived. Right? John's gray-green eyes widened. We don't know that even if they get this hatch of yours open, that we don't get spit out into eastern or western Asia. We don't know if the area is permanently destroyed, blanketed by radiation. We don't know if the air is breathable or the water toxic. What then? Bath struggled to stand. His action was a sign of defiance. Sounds like the council talking, Bath said, then implored. Ganial, Miral, has it ever occurred to you that the council doesn't want anyone to know the truth? Ganiah's eyebrows raised. A long line cut into her otherwise smooth forehead. It was a look of fear, not surprise. The truth... And what is the truth, John? I mean something other than their truth. What the Council calls the truth. 
doctor, Kanaya warned him without emotion. You shouldn't say such things. Besides, if that was the case, why would the Central Processor and the Shadow Council authorize this mission? You, and the General, and the Major, to Manhattan. Bath shrugged. He moved a few inches up the ramp. I don't know. But I'm going to find out. Don't get excited. Meryl followed behind Bath with the wheelchair. You need to recover so we can send you back soon. John looked down at the smooth, buffed floor. It was so different than the scratched tile of the laboratory or the dirt-encrusted linoleum in the lower sections of the Phoenix Project. How long had it been there? Was the laboratory built before or after the UN survivors fled the destruction of New York? John, you shouldn't be saying these things. Bath looked back, his face contorted. Someone has to. Yes. Ganiah spoke softly, her mouth near Bath's ear. But that's enough for today. She turned so he could see her eyes, the dark irises widening. John left Meryl there in the hallway outside the laboratory. On his way back to the compact, cell-like apartment he shared with his roommate, he thought about his formative years as a teenager. He took comfort consuming history, art, literature, and philosophy. Everything to which the computer gave him access. John felt a great sense of satisfaction storing away all the information about the world above ground and what existed below. He longed for a day to come when he would be able to help his father and the rest of the Phoenix Project return to the surface. John was convinced his knowledge could substitute for experience. His ambition would suffice for practical skill. At the very least, he would share that day with his father and make him proud. But that's not the way things turned out. And now, when finally, John Bath had the opportunity to apply all of his knowledge and talent, his father was gone, and he was a pawn of the Central Processor and the Shadow Council. Devenu rode the opaque lift to the empty room where she reported to the Shadow Council. Lights dimmed, and the floor tiles began to glow. Then, distorted images of the council members appeared before her. Without her usual preamble, Devenu cleared her throat and then spoke. Members of the council, I apologize for the recent problems in the laboratory. The Shadow Council interrupted, speaking as one voice, one authoritative entity. What was the cause of the power spike? Danielle had practiced precisely what she would say. There were complications on the surface. After discussion with Dr. Ganaya and Engineer Chang, it is our understanding that John Bath's simulacrum was compromised. Compromised? Danielle stood still, trying to remain confident. His robot body was damaged. How? The team encountered survivors on Liberty Island. Faces without mouths distorted in the static-filled images before Devenu. It was obvious the members of the council were speaking, conferring with one another, but it was impossible to make out what they were saying. Of course, Danielle knew that the council members were as clueless about each other's identities as she was. Each member, selected by the central processor, sat before a lens in an isolated area. They communicated with her and with each other remotely. In this way, they could operate freely without restriction or prejudice. 
After a long pause, the council spoke. Then, there is life on the surface. Danielle nodded. And Dr. Bath? Devenu paused. She had considered how the mission could proceed without the academic. She hoped it wouldn't come to that. John is recovering. As far as a simulacrum, Cheng believes if she transmits to the surface, she can repair it. She may even be able to make repairs to the other robots in the underground shed. That is, of course, if she has your approval. That would give us more opportunities for other missions. Yes, I think it would. In the power spike? Devenu fought the urge to shrug, to look away. It was important for her to maintain balance between the authority of the Shadow Council and the experts she managed in the laboratory. Sending Chang to the surface only requires as much power as we originally allocated. But we can't send the engineer and Dr. Bath. No, Danielle relented. I don't think so. Two of the distorted heads in front of Devenu nodded. The others remained motionless. Are you aware that the power spike knocked out the entire flow of electricity in E-Block? Danielle shook her head. She thought about the stragglers, the lower-class citizens. No, I... Medical equipment shut down. Respirators. A dialysis machine. Glucose strips. Oh. I'm so sorry. Danielle's voice softened. She rarely made contact with those of the lower classes in the Phoenix Project. The sick. The elderly. Those unwilling to work. There had been power spikes and resource outages before. Each time, the Council's response had to be cautiously measured to avoid conflict. Mistakes in communication could lead to protests. Violence. It, it couldn't be predicted, Danielle explained. Are they all right? The Shadow Council's response was cold. Candid. They are old, Devenu. They are infirm. But those people... Expendable. We lost three. Acceptable losses. We must ensure if there is another spike, power won't be diverted from blocks A through D. The infirmary, the cafeteria, and common areas. We don't have enough resources to online the backup generators. We don't have petroleum. We don't have enough corn oil. This was the first time since she was selected to be project administrator that the Shadow Council had been so forthcoming about resource management. Danielle knew the Phoenix Project had diminishing organic resources, but she was unaware of the consumption of fuel. I can't guarantee anything, but... I want to send Chang in, at least temporarily, to determine the damage to Bath Simulacrum, to see if we can bring others online. We have a greater chance of success if we have more bodies to work with. Projected images of the Faceless Council fluttered as a wave of colored static made a line across each member. Agreed. If we need more power, we can divert energy away from the academy and libraries. Send the students home. The mission is of utmost importance. Very well, Agent Devenu. We will consult the central processor and respond to your request promptly. But be cautious. We would remind you, this mission is not about you or those in the laboratory. It is not about the team on the surface. You were all selected by the central processor because it was determined you were the group most likely to succeed. I understand, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. The purpose of the mission, the council said, then paused as if on cue. 
is to give hope to the 3,000 people still living in the Phoenix Project. Devenu faced the council, but stepped back a few feet. You mean 3,000 less the three in E-Block? Don't be clever, Devenu. The council responded in its usual monotone. In an odd way, this gave Danielle an awkward reassurance. She preferred the council's even tone and shapelessness. There was a simplicity to communicating this way. Consider yourself and the team reminded that if any of you are unsuccessful, you can be replaced. Danielle took a deep breath. No, I, I understand. I didn't mean any disrespect. Agent Devenu, your request is granted contingent on feedback from the central processor. We're adjourned. Danielle backed up a few more feet and watched the images of the Shadow Council blend and then disappear before her. The lights in the room brightened and her eyes adjusted as she departed. Aftermath, a Fire Pit Creative Group production. Based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrief, and Cole Hoopengarner. Original script by Warren Davis, with Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner, with music by Warren Davis. Links to the sound effects used for Aftermath can be found in the description section of each episode. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2019 by Fire Pit Creative Group.